Welcome to the Wisconsin Football Coaches Podcast with your hosts, Tom Swiddle, Tom Yashinsky, and Paul Navinsky. Now let's join the guys. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Wisconsin Football Coaches Association Podcast. I'm Tom Swiddle, head football coach at Wauwatosa East and past president of the WFCA. I am joined by my co-host, Paul Navinsky, former coach at Mosinee and a WFCA Hall of Fame member. Now, I, I just have to start with a little story here to tell you what it's like to get ready for this podcast. So I call Paul, like I always do before the podcast, so we can talk about something. Paul answers his phone, and I jokingly say, I bet you're on a boat right now fishing. And he said, yes, I am. I'm on a boat right now fishing. So we get about two minutes into the conversation, and Paul excitedly says, oh, I got something on my line. See you later. So 10 minutes later, I get this picture from Paul. He's holding his fish. The thing looks huge. You got a big grin on your face, Paul. And um, it looked like a rather large fish. And I'm just wondering, what kind of fish was that? How big was it? Well, first of all, yeah, it was a walleye. We do, you know, playing forwards is a rather large body near Mosinee. So we've been going out and catching walleyes. Uh, I'm almost 24 inches. It was a nice fish, but I almost dropped my phone time. So oh. I can't answer anymore <laughs> when you call. But, okay. But you know, you, well, that I, explains. I thought you were just blowing me off for a no, fish. I feel better topic. now that you dropped the phone yeah. instead. I, I, so, live in, I live in the Northwoods for a reason. I, I like the outdoors. I like. You've called me a few times in the turkey blind. I didn't answer. Yeah, I don't blame you. You don't want to give away your location to those turkeys. Although I keep inviting you down into my neighborhood because we got plenty of them wow. here in Brookfield. But anyway, Paul, hey, tonight we're going to talk about a topic that is really starting to affect the game of football, and that's the shortage of referees available to work games. We're in a situation where we have an aging population of football referees with more retiring every year and not enough individuals getting into the profession to make up for those leaving. We also have younger referees leaving the profession soon after they start. Paul, we really want to explore the dynamics of all of this, and uh, to help make sense of it all, we've got Brian Henson, Commissioner of the Greater Metro Conference and a football referee. Brian, thank you for joining us. Hey, it's an honor to be here with both of Paul and Tom. Brian, let's let's start by telling our listeners what a conference commissioner does. Few people know all the things that you got your hands on. Oh, you're absolutely right. It's a very challenging. You know, when people ask what you do, and they say you're a conference commissioner, or you'll speak to somebody they're like, oh, I didn't even know the conference had a commissioner. But it, it really involves a lot, and the position has actually evolved a lot through the years. This is my 24th year of being the GMC commissioner. I remember back when Tom was had his first run at at Wauwatosa East, and now he's making a second run. And I remember you coaching baseball with Jerry Tobble and that as well. But um, you know, as a conference commissioner, there's a lot of hats that we wear. One is I build schedules for the conference. So if you like unhappy with your first week matchup, right, and you're in the GMC, I'm the guy that you're going to blame, right? We randomly draw numbers out of a hat and we build schedules, typically with a schedule builder. In addition to that, my job is maintaining bylaws. I was I go to end of season meetings. Tonight I was at our, our track meeting at Menominee Falls High School. And, you know, you're with the coaches and you're going through bylaw changes with them and you present the schedule to them and you talk about a officials and and a number of concerns and things that they have as well. I attend athletic directors meetings, principals meetings, superintendents meetings. Uh, when uh, concerned parents want to call and talk about if uh, how, how the all-conference voting process works in the conference, I'm kind of on the front lines dealing with those conversations as well. I order awards for the conference. So for example, for first and second team, um, we give out medals. So I'm in, involved in ordering those awards and things like that as well. And just generally being a spokesperson for the conference. And our topic of the night, one of my primary responsibilities is hiring the varsity officials for our conference events. So that's kind of a, if you want to say a little tour of being a commissioner, there's more, but that kind of gives you the basic idea. And you work closely with the WIAA. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think about it, right, a conference very much is kind of like a small version of the WIA. You have the WIA and it's a state-run entity and they have a set of rules and bylaws that the schools, member schools have to follow. And that's effectively what a conference is. It's a group of schools that collectively agree to participate together, to build schedules, to compete against each other. And you have a common set of rules that you agree to participate with. And that's a lot of times what's part of it, right? Sometimes you will have legitimate bylaw disputes between the schools and one school comes away happy sometimes and other times, you know, they're dissatisfied with that solution. And it's very much like Stephen's point, right? They're still making those types of decisions, but it's on a much smaller scale, right? There's hundreds of schools in the WIA and the Greater Metro Conference. We have 10 schools. Uh, one, it's co-ed with uh, eight of our schools. And then we have Divine Savior, Holy Angels and Marquette, which are single gender schools. Yeah, and I, I just want to say, Brian, you know, publicly, um, I've been involved in the as a head coach in a greater metro conference for, I don't know, 22, 23 years between Tulsa East and, and Brookfield East. And I always appreciated, uh, you know, how you handle things, how you ran things. So um, I just want to say I, you've done a very good job. Now, getting into our topic tonight, you know, you and I, Brian, have talked previously about the shortage and the recruitment of referees. And to me, there's like two parts to this thing. First of all, there's the actual recruitment of the men and women into the profession of officiating. And then the other part is, you know, addressing the issues that are causing individuals to not pursue the profession or discontinue officiating. Would you agree that that kind of sums up what we should be talking about tonight? Yeah, and I agree with that. I mean, there's a lot of things that have changed through the years as well. I think what you know, what actually influenced people to go into officiating. And I'll give you a good example. Bill Brand was a very good friend of mine. He was the past North Shore Conference Commissioner. He was the old Braveland Conference Commissioner back in the, the late uh, 1960s through the early 1980s when yeah. we're talking about version one of the Braveland. There's been right. several versions of it as well. But um, you know, and one of the comments that he made to me, and it still sticks with me till this day, is that over half of the officials that he hired back in the 70s and early 80s were school teachers that were coaches outside of their season that were officiating. And when you think about that, in 2023, that is a lot rarer. It's very rare that you'll have people and there are people that officiate and they coach. But back then you had a school teacher that was looking to pick up some extra money. They went into teaching a lot of times because they wanted to coach. And in their off season, they would pick up games traditionally. And by today's standards, this is very different at the school they taught at. It was not unusual to have teachers in schools working the sub varsity games. And that was a population that was utilized for officiating. As we moved into the 90s and 2000s, there was way less school teachers that went down the officiating path. They went down the coaching path. And you then had this group of officials that have continued to age. And if you go out to any Friday night varsity football season, you will see a lot of people that are well eligible for social security officiating games. And so we've had a population that's aged. And then I think the question is, is like, what can we do now to kind of repopulate that that group of officials? And I think that's really a great topic for us to discuss today, particularly with, you know, a prime target audience for this football coaches and, and people that are very passionate about high school football. Um, well, well, Brian, first of all, I want to thank you because conference commissioners and officials really only get the attention when there's a problem. When somebody doesn't agree with some, so I, I just got to ask this first: What made you want to be a conference commissioner and official? I, I kind of want to know that. Well, you know, for me, you know, the first thing that came is officiating. I legitimately finished high school, right? I was very involved. I was an average high school athlete, right? I was nothing special. I played football. I ran track. I played baseball. I was a third string point guard in my early high school career, right? But I was looking for something to do. And I had a buddy that actually worked at Oscars. If you're from Southeastern Wisconsin, there's a Custer place. It's Oscars, oh. right? He, he was flipping burgers there for $3.85 an hour. And my buddy and I formed a slow pitch softball team. We went, played in the city of West Dallas and they were looking for umpires and they were paying $10.50 
per game for a 50 minute time limit. And I thought my buddy is over a hot grill flipping burgers. I'm an 18 year old kid. I am out here and I'm in charge. I'm getting exercise. I'm getting yelled at too, but it was fantastic. And I really fell in love with it. So after that first year, that summer of my senior year working slow pitch softball, I registered with the WIA. I started working fast pitch softball, started working baseball. And then the following year I registered to be a, a active football official and, you know, 32 years later, whatever it is, you know, here I am still, uh, you know, involved with it. Um, and I think that's the key, right, is if you can get somebody that the timing's right, that, you know, getting the type of compensation that an official can get, not working only high school, but the youth stuff, it's still attractive compensation for a college kid that's not going to get a, you know, a full-time job, you know, with benefits and everything else that goes with it. And if you can get them interested in pursuing that officiating track rather than the coaching track, it is a channel to repopulate our officials population. Brian, you kind of hit on something I've been kind of dying to ask you. I've had many discussions with WIA and other officials. I have a brother that's been an official for 30 years. Has the pay been a major issue for people not getting into it? Well, and I got to give you an honest answer. The pay is different now than it was. You know, you look, there's a young guy. He's now a firefighter in Madison. But when he joined my crew, he played at Oak Creek. You know, he played for the Joe Parr transition that was there. Um, a wonderful guy. He went to MATC in Madison to be a firefighter. And he was working on my football crew. He had a job at Costco, okay? And at Costco, he was making $17.50 an hour for basically putting dog food and paper towel on shelves. A noble thing. Thing. I'm not taking anything away from that. But on a Friday night when he'd work a football game with us, based on the time of showing up about an hour and a half before game time, being out there half an hour beforehand, and a well over two and a half hour game, he actually was losing money by taking his Fridays off and working with us at Costco. So even though the compensation has increased, I will admit, it was a lot more lucrative back in the day. But on the flip side of it, I don't think you are a high school football official for the money. There's other sports that I agree that the compensation can be a big deal, but there's something special about being under the lights, Friday night, stands are packed, electric atmosphere, and um, you're. I think your average football official is not out there for the 70 or $75 that they're getting. A travel allowance, has that been, before everybody used to get mileage, and, and that was big because transportation costs are going up. Now I think some schools have cut back on that, correct? Yeah, and up north, it's much more common. So like some of our colleagues that are up north, mileage is a regular thing, but you have officials that are traveling larger distances. Southeastern Wisconsin's never embraced mileage. I mean, there's isolated situations, right? You might have a last minute situation and that as well, but that's much more common, particularly like in the northwest part of the state where those officials are traveling and that as well. And some conferences have actually gone to like a cap on mileage too, because now an athletic director is looking, it's like, can't you find somebody a little bit closer because my travel budget's really kind of killing us. So there has been the mileage thing, um, but that's much more of a feature of, of again, up north in those areas, uh, the western part of Wisconsin, but something that is not really caught on in the southeastern part of Wisconsin. And just to add to this discussion, I've recently um, restarted the, the Wauwatosis Junior Raider football program, and we're going to be playing in the classic youth football league. and. Um, I don't know if you, you might know um, Brian Gill, Brian, he's the commissioner of, of that league. Anyway, um, you know, I, I asked him, I said, because we have to pay the officials. And I asked him, well, what does an official get? He said, you know, the four officials that work a youth game get paid 60 bucks a game, yeah. which I thought was, holy cow, that's that's not bad at all. And a lot of times it's cash on the field, Tom. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's how I'm going to do it. No, I don't know. I, I shouldn't say that. But uh, yeah, so I, but I, I agree with you, Brian, my father-in-law, he's retired now. He's, he's one of the guys we're talking about. He officiated football for, I don't even know how many years. Uh, and he officiated, officiated it until he really couldn't run anymore because he had to get a knee replacement. But, um, you know, he didn't do it for the money. In fact, he probably lost money on the deal because after every game, the camaraderie that he had with his 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 officiating team they went out after every game got something to eat 
you know, and probably spent the the seventy dollars or whatever it was they were making at that time. So um, now, now Brian, I know in, in uh, two thousand seventeen the NFHS um, started a program uh, whose purpose was to recruit officials. And, you know, they made this a priority, and I'm just wondering. Um, when did it become a priority in the state of Wisconsin? When, when did you as a conference commissioner first get a hint that, hey, we might be heading for trouble here because I'm having a hard time finding officials to, to work all the games in the greater metro? And, and we're also talking, of course, not just varsity games, but, you know, JV and freshman games. And, you know, did the WIA or when did the WIAA kind of get involved um, in this discussion, too, of recruiting officials. Well, and, you know, to be honest with you, and if you talk to my colleagues from the Conference Commissioners Association, we have always said, a matter of fact, one of the comments that Doug Chickering would say, who was the past director of the WIA, and even Dave Anderson, who was his successor, was one of the most common things that they heard was that we could use more officials. And to them, that meant that this is always like one of the things, like, you know, coaches are always going to complain about their conference alignment or whatever, right? But, you know, what happened was, is we had a problem that, you know, going back to like, you know, your Tosi East days, right? You know, uh, when Donovan was playing and you had a really good team that year, back then that was still a problem. We were very, very concerned about it. And the trend always was heading in the wrong direction. And then COVID hit. And as a conference commissioner, I was very nervous because one of the problems that you have, especially with an older population of officials, is once you get them out of that, what you'd say, seasonal aspect. I'm going doing the scrimmage. I'm going and doing these Friday night games. Um, sometimes people, that's their off ramp. They won't come back. Fortunately, we didn't lose as many of these people as I thought we were going to, which has kind of been a Band-Aid for a short period of time. But the ruthless reality is we have an aging population. There's less than ever. And we definitely need to find a way to get more people that want to put the stripes on on Friday night. Paul? Brian, how much? has the stress from fans, coaches, players. Um, you know, last year, I think I watched the video, one of the players from another state actually assaulted an official at the game. Um, you know, how, how, how much of a factor has that been? You know, and I will say this, right? I, I have a different little perspective than some people do. I mean, when you look at it, Referee Magazine and the National Association of Sports Officials, I've done, you know, they're they're actually based in Racine, Wisconsin. Barry Mano is the founder of that. He founded the organization in the 70s. I think they've done a fantastic job with bringing attention to like officials assaults and people getting yelled at and all this type of stuff. And I think right now the feeling is it's gotten worse. I, I will tell you this. I remember getting yelled at 20 or 25 years ago, the kind of the same way I am now. I think because you have social media, there's so much more film. It's in high definition now that a lot of times that these things get highlighted in a very different way. I will say this. I think your average referee expects that they're going to get yelled at. They, you know, there's a saying in the officiating profession, I love it when they boo, you know, that type of thing. I think what people... I think one thing that can drive people away is maybe that they feel that once that the, the heat of the moment's over and they still are getting disrespected in some way in that as well. But I don't I don't think coaches are that much different than they were, you know, like, you know, back in, in the 80s or the early 90s and stuff like that. And, you know, I've seen crazy situations back then as now. I think that's cited as a factor. I think that a lot of things have changed that makes officiating less attractive to somebody to get involved in it. And I think what we need to do is be able to find a way to, you know, identify the people that would be good prospects. Like, in, you know, like before we started recording, we talked about getting players involved as coaches, right? This is the prime, you know, audience of this podcast. You may have a kid that's a backup quarterback or your third string quarterback, and he's really smart, but he's no Tom Brady, right? He's no Aaron Rodgers with his uh, version of his arm, right? But he's a really smart kid. And that's the reason he's your backup quarterback. That might be the type of kid to talk to and say, hey, what are your plans beyond high school? I mean, maybe you do play a little Division three college football, but maybe think about being a referee because you're really smart and this is a way to stay involved with the game. And I think sometimes with coaches, I think the biggest mistake that we can make when we're on the sidelines is we get into the competitive battle of the of of dealing with the officials and the, and the arguing and the debate. 
But then once you get away from the game, you kind of forget about it, right? And you never go back to those athletes and say, hey, you know, have you thought about officiating? I would encourage coaches to invite a, a official that you might have some rapport with to come into your two-a-days. Talk to the kids about maybe, you know, some points of emphasis, maybe give them a little bit of a pitch about officiating, and maybe even try and convince your athletic director to throw that guy a couple of bucks for making the appearance. And I think that a whole lot of goodwill could potentially come out of something like that. When I was coaching, Brian, because we every coach took the rules test, we had our younger coaches, hey, you guys want to make some money, youth, and, and you know, they were usually in college, or, and, and they did. They would officiate on Saturdays and, and they, they were making 50, 60 bucks. And 10 years ago, that was a pretty good gig for them. So every coach really got their own. And it's easy. You want to explain the process, how to become an official. Yeah. And, you know, that's it. And I will say this. I think you hit on a good point. Besides talking to your kids, you know, as head varsity football coaches, right, you've got a lot of people that will come to you and they'll want to be, especially if you're successful, right? You've got all kinds of people. And I will say this, coaches don't make a ton of money either. When we talk about officials paying not keeping up, coaches are not going to Boca Raton on their on their high school varsity coaching checks as well. And, and most of the coaches listening to the show are probably nodding right now. But, you know, you're going to have people that are going to come to you that are going to be interested in coaching, but their work schedule is not going to allow them to be at a Tuesday or a Wednesday practice, right? They want to be there on Friday night on the sidelines, right? Well, instead of just saying, eh, you know, it's not going to work out. Good luck to you. Maybe encourage that type of person to get involved in officiating too, because they might have never thought about it, right? And, and I think that's kind of a demographic and kind of like leading in to how do you get involved, maybe even having that information to how to get involved so you can help them. So, I mean, the general process is you contact the WIA and you say, I'm interested. And what they're going to do is they're going to send you a basically, now you do it online, it'll be a link to register. You put in your basic information, you're going to pay a fee to the WIA, it's $15 per sport, it's not a lot of money. Once you register, they're going to send you rule books, they'll send you a link so you can see Tom Shafransky going through the rule changes, which all the coaches are very familiar with because you have to watch that video as well. They send you the test, there is a background check for officials and they do run that just to make sure that there's no issues. If you pass the background check, you register, you're licensed, okay? Now, that doesn't mean you're ready to go because you still need to go out and get all your equipment and it's not just a striped shirt. You know, it, you know, you also have to get the bags and the flags and the whistles and all that stuff. And then have enough confidence to actually go out there and actually start officiating games. And there's different ways. Some people pursue sub-varsity games. Some people pursue the youth route that we've talked about as well. Some people just jump right into the fray. But that's basically the process. Um, it's really not that hard to get involved. But I think a lot of, I think people that aren't familiar with it think that there's all these barriers and there's really not. Um, I think the biggest barrier is getting enough confidence to go out there and be able to enforce, you know, things beyond a false start or an offsides, which almost everybody can do. But getting more onto, you know, again, some of these more fine-tuned decisions that you have to make, including penalty enforcement and, and those types of things. So really, Brian, you're talking about a specific type of person. You know, you, you, not everybody's cut out for it, but there certainly are probably professions out there that lend themselves because of what you do on a daily basis, lends themselves to being an official. And, um, you know, you've described really the people that that could be getting into it. Some, but what other kinds of groups of individuals do you think um, in your mind would be good officials because I've got a list here that I would like to share after you, uh, you know, going back to the uh, NFHS uh, priority of recruitment of officials back in 2017, they actually identified some groups of people that they wanted to reach out to about officiating. So besides what you've already mentioned, are there any other um, groups of people, occupations that lend themselves to being officials? Well, and I would say this, I think one untapped group, and I think it's one that we started in our fall meeting when we, we go up to the Dells every year as conference commissioners, we have a meeting, Tom Shafransky comes in, you know, Deb Hauser comes in and we, you know, we talk to the WIA about a number of things. 
But one of my colleagues brought up the idea, and I think it's a really good idea. If you have parents that are in your program, they're like in the booster club, they're all in, you know, they're at the parent night situations, and now their kid goes on to college, for example, and they're not a college football player. That person may still have the, if you want to say, enthusiasm for the Friday night lights, that they could be looking now more as an empty nester in some situations for something else to do on a Friday night. And they may not even have ever thought about becoming an official. And let's face it, they've watched the game. They watched the Badgers on Saturday. They watched the Packers on Sunday. They're going to have a basic idea, or at least they're going to feel that they do, of the basic rules. That's pass interference. That's offsides. That type of a person, I think, if they're basically have some level of conditioning, could really be a good fit for you know, again, a decade or two of something to keep yourself active, keep yourself mentally active, physically active, and it's something competitive. I think one thing that, you know, coaches are highly competitive and they understand, you know, very type A competitive personalities. Well, anybody who's interacted with a lot of officials, hopefully the light bulb goes off that officials are competitive as well. And maybe you don't have the time to be a coach, right? You can't put in the time for the two a days and you can't be there at 2.30 in the afternoon, but that wouldn't prohibit you from working a JV game on a Thursday night or, or starting to work a Friday game. So I think kind of like, and I would say for coaches that are listening to this, your players are the obvious choice, right? To look at that as well. But their parents are also a really, really solid possibility. And the light bulb may have never gone off that they could get involved in it. And I think sometimes most people get involved in officiating because somebody kind of pulled them into it. You know, it's not like somebody just woke up one day and says, you know what, I think I really want to be a referee. It's usually, um, you know, somebody that pulls them into it. Like there was a major league umpire that recently passed away. His name was John Kibler, and he was a good friend of mine. And he tells a great story that he actually, as a high school kid, had a teacher that was a gym teacher and a coach. And he had an umpire's indicator that people keep track of the count on. And he said, I was a little bit of a, you know, a mischievous kid. And one day I swiped it and the teacher caught it. And he said, you swipe my indicator and you know what your punishment is? I need a partner on a Saturday baseball game and you're my partner. Uh. And here's the best part of that story. John Kibler went on to become a major league umpire. And when he shared the story with me at a group of uh, officials that came to watch him speak, guess what he pulled out of his pocket? That stainless steel indicator that that gym teacher that he swiped from that gym teacher that got him involved. There's usually everyone has that type of an origin story. So I would I would encourage the coaches, you know, think about your players, think about these parents, and maybe you could be that origin story for them, not necessarily making the NFL or the Big Ten, but be having a really, really, really great experience with being a high school football official. Neil Brunner, who we've had on the you know, the radio show, and you were on one time with him, I believe, um, Brian, has a similar story. And and it's just, a, I'm not going to go through it. You know, it's Neil's story, but how he got involved is very similar to what you described. So I know you guys are dying to hear the um, NFHS groups of people that they really were concentrating on. So are you guys ready? Here we go. Individuals who uh, participated intramurals. They thought would be great candidates. Police, firefighters, EMT, you've mentioned it, Brian, high school teachers, current or past high school coaches, fishermen. I'm just kidding about that one, Paul. He didn't really say fishermen. But, you know, though, if you really think about those, you know, these are decision-making kinds of professions, and these were the people that the National Federation kind of went after. Well, time you hit a firefighters, I'm going to say this, right? Typically for them, they're in the firehouse for a period of time, like 24 hours, 24, 36 hours. 24 and then they have a couple of days off. off. Yep. I've had, you know, Andrew Rodriguez was on my crew. He was a Cudahy, Wisconsin firefighter. He always, you know, swapped his day off on Fridays so he could work football games. And so for somebody like a firefighter, it's a great thing because they they can schedule their, their day around that. And again, firefighters are fit. They tend to have that kind of personality take charge you know making decisions yeah absolutely right tom i think that's great so yeah you guys have talked yeah people in any service organization somebody but i i want to focus in on mentorship i I really think that's one of the areas that we need 
to spend more focus and time. I, I can just tell you personally, I, I still do a football camp. Yeah, yeah, Tom, I don't fish all the time. I still do a football yeah, camp. When you're not fishing, you're hunting. Well, true, but uh, coach, I used to coach at Everest, and Coach Stephanie and I started a camp back in 96, and we still keep on doing it, even though he passed away. And this year, I was contacted by an official who wants to start a mentorship program and talk to the kids at the camp. Now, we have 300 kids that come to this camp. And, um, you know, I know the WIA does a mentorship. My brother has mentored people in his crew. But is that something you see in the southeast part of Wisconsin? And if, if, are the conference commissioners pushing that? Yeah, I think it's very organic, though, because what will happen is somebody will take a keen interest in somebody and then they will mentor them. You know, we don't really have a formalized process where we're like matching up mentors with mentees at that particular point. So I think there's a little bit of this kind of organic thing that goes on as well. I think there's potential. I think you need to put resources behind it because the problem is, right, is when you have somebody that's mentoring somebody, they're not out on the gridiron working the games, right? So it's a weird kind of dynamic when you have this kind of mentoring relationship. And right now, and, and some of the coaches listening to this show know this, and I've had this happen on my crew. I've worked significant matchups where we've taken officials in their first year and we've had to put them out there because again like tom said at the open of, of the show there's just not enough people to cover all the friday night games so you would take somebody that if you went back 10 or 15 years ago there's no way they would have seen a varsity football field on a on a you know on a meaningful game yeah maybe a running clock game or something like that but not on a meaningful game where you're literally going to go to the coach and say look I want you to understand this is his first season. He will make mistakes. We're going to work really hard for you here, but I want you to know that young guy over there, he is just starting out. So if you got a problem, come to me. I'm ready to take the heat. And, you know, it's it's that type of situation. So a lot of this mentoring is you need somebody on Friday and you're plugging them in and you're saying, we're going to make you back judge tonight. And that's how you're mentoring them. But I think, Paul, your idea of having more formal, um, you know, mentoring, I think is a good idea, but you need to get resources to put behind it to compensate a person for putting in all that time. Well, so. you know, when I was leaving teaching, we have a lot of apprentice programs, a lot of intern programs. I thought this would be a good idea for for larger school districts to say, look, we'll get you high school credit, plus you'll get paid. And I yeah. thought that was a great idea, especially for those kids. And, you know, Tom alluded to it. I, when I needed a stats guy, I went to the math teacher and said, Who's the best guy at stats that likes sports? And I'd say, hey, I'll give you 10 bucks a game. And it worked out well. I think, I think we as football coaches need to get more hands-on with this. And, 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 and especially if we're in the schools, because that's where the kids are. That's that's where the future is. Well, I, I can't agree with you more, Paul. And and so really what you're saying, Brian, is in order to get the experience, you really have to be thrown into the game situations. I mean, that's yeah. sort of your training. You can only watch so many videos. You can only read so many books, but you have to get out on the field. And so you're really like on the job training. That's how you become an official. Yeah. And especially working some varsity games. Like some people think like the, you know, again, the August scrimmages, is that a good opportunity? It's really not because as all the coaches that are listening to this show know, and I worked a whole bunch of these, most of the time you're kind of window dressing on scrimmage day. They want you to kind of stay out of the way. You're, you're, you're running your offense. You know, you you want to get kids, you know, cracks at one another and getting snaps in. And they're not looking for somebody to get highly technical when it comes to, uh, you know, enforcing things like you would in a game situation where a coach is going to sit there and say, hey, look, that's an illegal formation, right? You know, what they want you to probably do is say, hey, you need to get that end up on the line because he's really a back. So you only got six on the line, you know, that type of thing. So um, yeah, you're right. I mean, you almost, it is something that you have to learn. And I think football officials, it's hard because you don't get as many reps. If you're a basketball referee, if you're a baseball umpire, you can work basically every day in the season. And I think one of the things that to me was one of the challenges of being a football official was getting the amount of repetitions that you'd feel comfortable out there. It was interesting because it would usually be like week six or seven when the weather was getting really bad here in Wisconsin, that I would feel really comfortable with my counts of the offense, with my penalty enforcement, with, with, with my kind of 
keeping track of the downs. When you go out there and you're doing like week one and stuff, you don't have as enough snaps. And like Tom said, you can watch video and I do. And there's Bill Lamalier has some great video training videos for high school officials and they're very inexpensive. You, you can watch those and prepare you and you feel better prepared, but you just still need to get those reps under your belt to, to, to really, uh, um, you know, feel comfortable out there and kind of be in the groove. Paul, I, I, I got to ask you this because I've had some funny experiences with him. Have you ever been mic'd up? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We one yeah. Time were, we were one time we're playing in West appear in a high level playoff game and the official often forgot to put his mic and he was hilarious. Like, you, you can't do that, son. And, and, and the whole crowd's here. And yeah. You ever yeah. have any weird situations with it? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting, right? Because the Thursday night game, they keep basically a live mic on you. And what happens is they control it from the actual, you know, the, the truck that they have there, you know, the studio truck. So I always remind my crew and, you know, it's the same thing, right? We have to be careful. My mic is live. And remember, Anything that you say to me, you should be willing to say any to to that person standing right there. So, and I'll say that we always say that right ahead because you know. And I talked to Bill Carollo about this, who's the NFL, you know, uh, uh, past retired NFL official, and now he's the guy in the Big Ten. Because when they started using mics in the Big Ten, my high school crew used it, and I always said, "It's not what you're saying to each other; it's the person standing behind you. You have to be careful." Hey, Brian, I'm dying to know this. Did any of the other officials make a comment about Tom's hair? <laughs> well, you know, Tom's had yeah, some fantastic hairstyles through the years. By no, I mean, way. did anybody make a comment like, God, what shampoo does he use? <laughs> that type of thing. Yeah. You know, a matter of fact, on the GMC website, if you anybody wants to go and look, I have some fantastic pictures of Tom when he was at East. Um, you know, which one there? Um, you know, there's one on the sidelines. It's one of the more epic pictures you can go on there. It's your you have that very head coach look, Tom, as very enthused. <laughs> your, your assistant at the time who did pass away, I don't recall his name, but I know that there is tremendous outpouring in the community, is literally jumping up and down. And I believe Coach Far. Charlie is showing off his vertical in that picture as your assistant. So it's one of my favorite pictures from that era. So including well, one you standing, this is one of my favorite. I know we're off tangent here. One of my favorite pictures, you'd have to go back to around 2014 on the website. It's Tom standing with his son, with his arm on him when wow. his son was a, a quarterback at Brookfield East. It's another one of my favorite pictures. So, well, I have to go look those up. Believe me. Hey, so we've had about six, seven years maybe of, of a really concentrated effort to get officials and, you know, I should say individuals um, involved in officiating. Is it working? Well, I mean, it is, but I think one of the things that comes into play, like one of the things that has really been promoted by the WIA and I think has been a pride is that you have a lot of high schools that are having these officiating classes. And what's happening is they're having more registration because kids are taking these officiating classes. Now, I taught at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee a class that was called Baseball and Softball Umpiring and Football Refereeing and Coaching. And the one thing that I've warned everyone that started one of these classes is that you're going to get a couple of kids involved. If you've got 20 kids in the class, many of them are taking that class because they're athletes, they're interested in sports, they are not planning on officiating. So I think that there's progress being made, right? But the progress problem is it's kind of like when you you have three going out and one going in you still have a problem and so yeah. i think that there's been an effort that's been made but on the flip side there's so much more that we have to do I, Paul? I, i've talked to tom and deb about this i really believe it's a money issue where if we actually really raise the money to where you know because some of these jobs you can get 20 bucks an hour if we would raise the money i think we would get some of the younger generation to go in yeah. I mean, I think, and especially, I think it's funny because this is obviously football focused. That's very much the case in other sports. I will say this, any of you guys that are coaching out there on Friday nights, 
There is nobody that's working your football games for the money because there's other options. They could be doing youth football. They could be working other sports. Like if you're a volleyball official, you make more than a high school football official. You know, I'll tell you a commissioner story, right? One time I was at Nathan Hale High School on a mid-October game and it was raining out there and I came home and it was the white knicker era and I had to wash my knickers and they were ruined, right? And a volleyball official contacted me wearing my Greater Metro camp cap and he said hey you know i thought what you paid in volleyball was a little bit low that's when we were getting 40 bucks as a varsity official he got 95 bucks he showed up at 4 30 went home at 8 30 and he was dry yeah, he was dry, and I was on a football field, uh, you know, at the old Athlete, West Dallas Athletic Complex. They got field turf there now. Back in the day, it could be a quagmire there. And, uh, uh, you know, so it, it was an interesting thing. So I think what we have to do is appeal, like I said, the parent that they're an empty nester now that's never even given any thought to becoming a referee. To me, some of that stuff is kind of the untapped thing because the money's not going to matter to them as much. So... Well, and sort of to, to end our discussion on this, and we're going to segue into something else shortly. You've got one minute to sell, you know, the idea of becoming an official. You know, so what are the benefits of becoming an official? Why would somebody want to be an official? Well, you know, and I think there's three things that come to it. One thing I'm going to say is this, you know, we've gone through a lot of changes, right? And people talk about, you know, social unrest and this type of stuff. One of the things that gives me the greatest satisfaction of being officials is I see generation after generation of young people involved in high school athletics. And it makes me so optimistic about the future. These are level-headed. They are smart. They're competitive. They're wonderful. And I think one thing that I get out of it is, it's reassuring to me that our future is bright. I have that on the conference website. I've said that many times. It's almost like a Brian soundbite. I think another thing that's very gratifying about being official is far more competitive than you'd anticipate. It's an opportunity. If you're a competitive person and the coaching track is not an option for you, you will be surprised how interesting it is. There are coaches that have actually come over and they're like, I never realized how competitive this was and how challenging it was. And I think that's the third thing. There's a challenge involved in this. If you like rules, if you like making judgments in that and being in charge, there's a gratifying aspect of that. And I think it's the thing that all the coaches can appreciate that are listening to the show and all the football aficionados. There's something special about being in a fall on a Friday night at a high school under the lights and the booster club is there and the parents are there and the kids are there and the student section's going nuts and you're on the field as a middle-aged person, male or female, having an opportunity to participate in a really, really amazing event. So that would be my pitch. Paul? I might, like I said earlier, my brother has coached for over 30 years and with his crew and his crew's been together for a while. It was to make a level two playoff game was an honor to them that it was good to state. And then they, they actually did one of the all-star games and they're like, they're, they, they thought those moments were so special in their career that they're so proud of it. I, I think you're right. That has a lot to do with it. Well, that's yeah. a great summary, Brian. Uh, I'm sorry. I cut you off. Oh, no, I mean, I just have moments like that. I can remember, you know, going back, Phil Datka, Dave Keel, I'm working a Homestead Germantown game. The place is packed. Keel's working me over on the sidelines. No, you, know, you wouldn't do that. You know, that type no of thing. You know, that type of thing. And it was an amazing night. It was a night I was mic'd up. I, I still remember that game. You know, Homestead had that amazing streak that they had in the North Shore. Germantown yeah, almost knocked games. them off that night. Yeah. And uh, it was a great night. And I think that might have been Phil Datka's last year. I love Phil. He was fantastic. He was a great athletic director, great football coach. And, you know, this was something that happened many, many years ago, and I still remember it, and I cherish that memory. So Yeah. Well, we're we're really glad that that we've got individuals like you who are fighting the, for the profession and uh, doing the job that you do um, as a conference commissioner and getting, you know, I think very competent and good people um, getting the games in, in the greater Metro. Now, we're going to ask you to change a little bit here we're going to put your white hat on all right so now you've got your white hat on and one of the things that we wanted to do um, with this podcast is also talk very briefly about rule changes for 2023 and 
Um, I'm going to let Paul, who's who's uh, much more passionate about these things than me, kind of lead this discussion. But Paul, you you and I talked, and and you've got some things that uh, you feel is important to be covered here for coaches. Well, I, 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 there's not a lot of rule changes, and I was a coach that was, the biggest one is the penalization of offensive penalties. And Brian, you might want to go over that a little bit. You probably can explain it to me. But you know, as an offensive player, if you held somebody behind the line of scrimmage it could be a devastating penalty. And, and those things have changed a little bit. Um, also the towel thing, the, I hate to say it, the towel controversy, the color, the logo. They don't all have to be the same color now. Yeah. yeah. Some people that has just been crazy. Yeah. Um, and then, then there's been a few other minor language things. So Brian, if you just want to briefly go over, you'll, you'll probably explain better than I do. Yeah, you know, and that's it. You know, like the towel thing, it's, you know, I like it. This is a year that I, you know, you there's years that you don't like the changes and there's years you like the changes. Usually the years you don't like the changes is when there's something that's going to be significant in how you're enforcing things uh, with rules and stuff like that as well. To me, the changes like the towel thing, right? You've got a whole bunch of kids out there and they've got yellow towels on and uh, and the, the, the school colors is yellow and maroon. And now there's a kid out there with a maroon towel on and that's a problem. Like if it's football colored, you can see where that could be a problem right but you know to me yeah i think that's great you don't have to all have the same color towel on everything's good sometimes you didn't realize how wet it was going to be out there and now you're scrambling around looking for towels and now you have to worry about if you're going to enforce a rule as an official and you generally try to use common sense with that so that's a to me it's a that's a positive change it's a minor one but believe it or not that one might be the one that actually has the most impact on the gridiron this year because there's a whole lot of kids that wear different colored towels from time to time out there i think you're right paul the enforcement rule, I think, is if you're an offensive coach, you're loving this because obviously you're going to be first and 20 instead of like first and 32 in some cases, right? For how some of these penalties got enforced, like holding behind the line or like illegal batting or kicking, which sometimes, you know, that's it's a rare situation. And now that occurs behind the line of scrimmage on first down and it might have been inadvertent. And now you're in a deep, deep hole. Um, and, you know, I also like rules like this year that what's happening is NCAA rules and NFL rules tend to lead the way. And then as the Federation tends to follow along, that's what's happening with the enforcement. So traditionally in the NFL and the NCAA, you're enforcing from the previous spot on these behind the line penalties. And now we're all back to the line of scrimmage. Fans are going to be able to understand why it's first and 20 now instead of first and 32. I think that's a really positive positive change as well. Um, and then, you know, there's a little more clarification on a defenseless player. That's a big deal. You know, when I first started fishing, I always say this, if you called like, you know, uh, you know, butt blocking or spearing back in the day, you usually took heat for that because you'd hear things like you got to let him play and you got to be kidding me. And it's interesting because now over the last several years with the concussion awareness, now you hear the opposite, like that's a head tackle or he's got to, you know, he's got to keep the head out of football. And I, I commend the coaches and many of you are listening to this podcast have done a really, really good job with with coaching good tackling because it's good for the game. It's good for the health of the kids, you know. There's nothing like an official that you love to see a kid make a great form tackle and, and everything as well. So, um, you know, again, the defenseless player thing, more clarification about a receiver when he's defenseless. You can't punish guys as much as you would have been able to like in the 1980s, you know, and I think those are positive changes as well. So that's kind of a tour. I mean, the only other thing I was going to touch on was the snap. You know, back in the day, you know, you had to do a direct hand snap from the center to the quarterback for him to spike the ball to stop the clock and believe it or not that used to be intentional grounding in high school football until a few yeah. years ago yeah. there's a little clarification that it's only the player that receives the snap from the center now that can actually spike the ball you can't hand it off to a back and then he spikes it down that's such an ed edge case it might happen like once or twice in the entire Wisconsin high school football season, but it's probably there because it happened one time and it got to the Federation Coaches Committee that we need to close this loop. Yeah, yeah Brian, I agree with you. The, even the going out of bounds, inbounds has been clarified a little bit also. I mean, there are minor changes, but I think the biggest one is going to be, especially that holding call that happens six, seven yards behind the line of scrimmage is not going to just kill the offense. It, it may even generate more points and more excitement for the offensive 
Uh, yeah, if you're a defensive coordinator, this is not a positive change because, right, you love to dig him in. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. But from a lot of perspectives on that one, an offensive coordinator's perspective or a referee's perspective, this is a positive change. Yeah. Especially with the run and shoot offenses that are kind of the trend right now. Well, that's it. Yeah, and that's been something that's changed a lot. I mean, back in the day and time, you've been around Paul. You were I mean, when you think of how much running there was in high school football, and even the timing rules were different. You know, on a kickoff, if you caught the ball and you were tackled in bounds, the clock went on the ready. Now we start on the snap. And with passing offenses, heck, there was a lot of times where I remember we were, you know, you could easily get varsity football games done well under two hours. A two-hour game without a running clock right now is a rarity in high school varsity football. Not to say that's a negative thing, but you're right. There's so much more passing involved in the game. And penalty enforcement on passing is, is it's a big deal. It's no getting around because it does. It puts you in, in a situation where it's a hole you can't dig yourself out of. And you're pretty much figuring out, you know, what type of field position you're going to give up when you punt because, you know, you're, you're halfback held on first down. So, yeah. You know, and even the college game, we're not here to talk about the college game. They've really had some changes to their rules to keep the clock running because those games are getting ridiculously long. And uh, it's just part of, you know, football. You know? And you do baseball, Brian, and, you know, look what the major leagues have done, you know, with, with the different pitch counts and, and things like, or I pitch clock, excuse me, yeah, you know, and things like that. And, uh, you know, as a, as a, you know, former baseball coach, I coach baseball for almost 30 years. And, you know, the fact that uh, I can go to a Brewer game now and get out of there in two and a half hours. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll be there tomorrow, Tom. Oh, okay. I'll be there on Friday night. Awesome. So we'll be like ships passing in the, in the middle of the night. Hey, Brian, I want to thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. I mean, you've always been a go-to guy for me, and you have no idea how much I appreciate it. Um, you're so well-versed in all the things that that you talk about, and your passion and your enthusiasm for what you do is so evident. Uh, don't ever change, all right? You just well, never and I change. have such respect for both you and uh, Tom and Paul. And, you know, Tom, you've had such an amazing run. It's been an honor to watch you at Tosa East, you know, coaching baseball over there with Jerry Tobble. I mean, what you did at Brookfield East was incredible. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what you can do back uh, at the east side of Wauwatosa again. So thank you very much. And Paul, I've been a fan of yours too. We haven't crossed paths as much because of our zip codes, but I, I definitely have deep respect for you as a football coach and what you've done for, uh, you know, the high school uh, football community too. Thank you very much. Um, and I just wanted to issue something to coaches. You know, guys, just think before you start saying things or doing things during a game because a lot of times you're you're more frustrated with what's going on than a call. And maybe watch it. Thank you for everything. And let's hope we can recruit more people into this great game and keep making it better. Yeah, absolutely. And, and looking forward to a fantastic uh, uh, 2023 football season. I'm hoping it's going to be another interesting one. It'll be. Oh, I'm sure it will be. It always is. You know, yeah. every year has its own ups and downs and surprises. That's for sure. And Tom, I want to thank, or Tom, Paul, I want to thank you again for all the things you do for um, the, the podcast. And in the absence of Tom tonight, who, uh, as we talked about, was uh, is on a dock somewhere and, and looks like it's just beautiful, um, you know, lake that he's on. Um, you know, you do all the work behind the scenes, and, and I really appreciate that. Um, and as always, oh, Paul? I just want to tell you, you always tell me what a great job, but you're the guy that orchestrates and all this. I appreciate you call every guest. You do everything. You do a lot of legwork. Um, I still think you should have been an English teacher because when you write messages, <laughs> wow. But I, I appreciate it. It's, and I hope people enjoy it. Um, you know, we cover different topics, which I'm really, really proud of. Well, thank you very much. So, and as we always uh, end our podcast with listeners, if you've got an idea, a comment, a question, never hesitate to reach out to to Paul or Tom Yashinsky or myself. Um, we certainly are interested in what you have to say. So with that, thank you for being with us tonight and good night, everyone. Mm -hmm.